Welcome back to the Second Tips Podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fretz. It is Monday, November 15th. We are deep, deep into the offseason. And as a result, we have a pretty eclectic series of things to talk about today. Less reacting to uh, whatever's happened over the weekend and more just weird stories. There's lots of weird stories going on in the bike world right now. We've got... Garen Thomas's bike was stolen. We have more NFTs. We have riders getting fired and then unfired. We do have a Jiro route. That's that's a somewhat normal thing for us to talk about. And some transfers. Talk about that too. We'll get into that in later in the show. In today's nerd nugget. Should there be a mile per gallon rating for bikes? I'll explain what that means. Well, James will explain what that means later in the show. Let's say hello to everybody. How are you, Abby, in your van? I've still not recovered from Taylor Swift's all too well ten minute version. Um, it's been a roller coaster. I'm sorry. What are we talking about? Ta- Taylor Swift released a uh, red Taylor's version on Friday, and it re- it included a ten minute version of All Too Well that is just unreal good. I mean, I can't. There are no words. So what you're telling everybody to do is turn this podcast off and go and listen to that and then come back to this so they can you don't feel even have to come back. I mean, you won't come back. You'll go down the rabbit hole. So definitely go listen. <laughs> maybe maybe save that for the end of the show then. We'll save that for the end of the show. James, how are you? Uh, I would be doing a lot better if I had Taylor Swift songs going through my head instead of Hannah Montana songs going through my head because that is what, <laughs> that is what my kid is into lately. And oh. I want to... I, I want to like stick something in my eardrums. Uh, it, it's awful. <laughs> I have this to look forward to. Shoddy, you've got your own little one there. Yeah, I've got a little one on my knee while we're talking here. The, 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 my partner's nipped off to get the other kid. She's doing a school run this week. So I'm looking after the, the very tiny one, the four-month-old one, who's not into any music yet. She's just into eating, sleeping, and um, then getting rid of the food. <laughs> we did we had an event uh one such event yesterday that involved a blowout and a and a diaper upsize shortly after it was a, it was gross and and <laughs> and this and this is the content sucking tip reader has come to hear uh this is now just a daddy podcast <laughs> they, they come for blowouts but we're going to talk about content later aren't we <laughs> Ooh. It's like a reverse segue. That's like the kind of a segue we don't want to make, Shoddy. Dane, how are you? Yeah, doing fine. Nothing to report of of that kind of nature. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't have to hold a screaming seventh seven month old child by the ankles as you I did not. Uh scraped no. poo off of her? No. Yesterday? No. Oh. You're missing out. <laughs> I'm happy for you. I'm very happy for you. All right, let's get into today's episode. But before we do, Shoddy, what are we learning about Continental this week? Okie doke, here we go. Wherever you are in the world, there's hopefully riding to be done. From the Yorkshire Dales to the Flats of Netherlands and so many other places. Wherever you ride and whatever surface you ride on, your best bet is Continental. There's uh, GP5000 for the roadies, available, of course, in tubeless and tubed. Conti has the right tubes for those two, if you're still uh, one of them uh, team tube inside people. Then there's uh, the Terra Speed and Terra Trail, if gravel's your thing. Or if racing is uh, your scene, there's Continental's competition tyres for that too. And, of course, there's Continental's wide range of urban and mountain bike tyres as well. Watching the pros is amazing, but getting out on it for a ride yourself is even better. So get out on Continental tyres. Thanks to Continental for sponsoring today's episode. Let's get into the show. We've got a lot to talk about here. I'm, we're going to start with the sort of the quick hit weird news things we're going to discuss, and then we'll get into Juro and and transfers and things like that. So, first and foremost, we had a couple couple interesting bit, bit, bits of news uh, last week after the show, and then also over the weekend. First and foremost was Garen Thomas's bike was stolen. Who can tell me what happened here? His bike was nicked. <laughs> Thanks, Johnny. <laughs> we don't really I we don't really know that happened. much, do we? 
We don't. We don't. So basically, Garen Thomas posted an, an Instagram post uh, of just himself in the back of an Uber with a mask on saying, well, I stopped for coffee and uh, came back out and my, my bike was gone. And now I'm Ubering home. And that was kind of all the information that we got. And then a couple hours later, to to close the narrative, we got another photo of some police officers with his bicycle. A happy ending to this particular story. But it sounds like he was going to talk about what exactly happened uh, in his podcast, I guess. Yeah. Can we talk about Competitor's Podcast? Is that a Competitor's Podcast? I, I, I can't really say that that's I, a Competitor's Podcast. I, I didn't know Garrett Thomas had a podcast. <laughs> he does. I've, I've actually seen him record it live before. Uh, he recorded a, a live one at the World Championships, like in Harrogate, I think I was wearing it, with like him and Luke Rowe. Anyway, it's a pretty good podcast. If you're done listening to this podcast, you can go check out that podcast. Only after listening to this one, though. I'm dubious about his bike actually getting nicked. I think he's just using it just to hype up his own podcast because he says he reported it or, or tweeted it out from the, the, the back seat of an Uber. From my, if my memory serves me right, you don't. there is no Uber in Monaco where he lives. I'm pretty sure it's banned over there. Maybe he just like called a car and called it an Uber? Kaylee, did did you organize your bike getting stolen as a way to promote this podcast? Yeah, actually. Yeah. It also got me a bunch of new Instagram followers, which is obviously uh, everyone out there will know that that's how we get paid uh, in likes primarily. So I was pretty stoked about that. Uh, no, I did not. I'm going to have to try that. <laughs> I still haven't actually done anything with that bike. People keep asking me about it. It's hanging up. The frame is functional. I'm, I need to find a group somewhere. But the problem is you can't buy stuff right now. Uh, and so it hasn't, I haven't done anything with that thing. So yeah, so yeah, he's had his bike nicked, but the, the amazing thing is three hours later, it turned up. The police knocked on his door. The gendarmes knocked on his door with his bike. We, I am interested in finding out how they got it back so quickly. Cause I had a bike nicked here in France three years ago. I'm still waiting for the police to even pop around the house and let, and, and take a report for it. To me, this goes to show you that you don't want to steal a Pinarello right now. Uh, the, the, the police are two for two on recovering expensive Pinarellos in the last month or so. Uh, so maybe maybe don't steal a bike uh, in Europe. Or maybe just steal a different kind of bike. I don't know. It, it just doesn't seem like... Uh, or maybe just don't yeah. steal a bike of, of a famous... Either a famous yeah, bicycle, yeah. easily identified bicycle, or of a famous person who can send out a a call for help to what how many instagram followers does he have like half a million or something like that some very 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 large number thieves not the not the sharpest it's also hard to sell it was also yeah it's really hard to sell it was it's wow it's quite identifiable bike it had two different had like a front shimano wheel and a rear i think it was one of the princeton no what it was one of those wavy wheels what are they what are they james that they were running uh, Princeton Carbon. Princeton Tech. Princeton Carbon. I want to say Princeton Tech. Pr Princeton Carbon. I don't know. Well, I'm not sure. He said mismatched wheels. I don't know if he actually Here's specified. The, here, I'll the, send you the link here. There's a photo. In so the, the front looks like an aluminum aluminum brake track Shimano, I think, and the rear is one of those Princeton Carbon carbon wheels. So hopefully he changes brake blocks as well. And the bike is extremely dirty. This is clearly like the at-home beat-to-crap training bike, which I kind of like to see, honestly, of, of the pros. One of those bikes that just... This is not this is not his race bike. This is the bike that is just functional every single day. Got the power meter gonna go out and smash your face in. Yeah, just your just your standard everyday Pinarello F training bike. Don't we all have those? That's what everybody has. Yeah. Anyway, we can move on from Garen Thomas's poor stolen bike because he got it back. It's a it's a happy ending. We just you know, that's what we like to hear. Whenever there's a stolen bike, we always want it to come back. Preferably sooner than three years later. Preferably sooner than three years later. <laughs> We've got some funky news from last week. So this mostly happened uh, sh actually not too long after we recorded last week's podcast. And so it might feel like it was forever ago in, in the modern news cycle, but we haven't talked about it yet. So a bunch of riders, a couple different riders, uh, were briefly fired. Maybe. Probably not. Uh, and then unfired for riding the wrong bike dane tell me what happened here yeah it's two ef riders we're talking about uh and the first to have this happen was sergio aguita who was riding at uh 
Rigoberto Uran's event in Colombia. Rigo hosts a, uh, a big cycling event in Colombia. And Sergio was participating in the event. And he was not riding on a Cannondale like he should have been. Instead, he was riding on a specialized bicycle, uh, which is, of course, the, the bike brand that uh, he'll be on next year at Bora Hansgrohe. Uh, but, you know, he's contractually obligated to continue riding Cannondale until the end of the year because for some unknown reason, I mean, there are reasons, but cycling contracts run until the end of the year, but we know who you've signed with as far as, like, who you're going to in August, which is really strange. Anyway, you're not supposed to do that. And worse, he was, uh, he was, he was um, seen doing it. And, and there's, there's video evidence because somebody posted a video on Twitter uh, of him uh, putting in a big, big, you know, powerful move in this event. Just a, you know, a fun video of, of uh, showing the difference between uh, world tour riders and the rest of us, uh, I think was the caption, something like that. Uh, but it kind of kind of got Sergio into some hot water because uh, he wasn't supposed to be riding that bike. And apparently he was sent a termination notice from the EF team, which, you know, that's a, that's a pretty big deal. Although I think within their rights, uh, he did break the contract. He broke the contract. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm kind You're of not supposed to do that. I'm kind of of two minds about this. And, and, and I want to get into it a little bit because on one hand, it's a completely ridiculous thing to do to be like you rode the wrong bicycle in a in a random event. Wasn't even a race. Maybe fine him. I don't know. But like, don't a, a termination notice seems like a little a little excessive. I've heard of this happening before, but it's generally it's the equivalent of like a cease and desist, right? It's it's very rarely does a team actually follow through with terminating someone or cutting their salary or whatever. It's just a warning to say, please don't do this anymore. On the other hand, it's written in the contract. It's like it's in black and white. And it's it's pretty clear that you're not supposed to do that. It's not that hard to ride the bike. I mean, Iguita's probably still got a Cannondale, I would imagine. If not, I imagine that's the first thing he would have said as well. I don't have a bike anymore, so I had to ride this one. Because, you know, at some point, EF is going to ask for that bike back. But I don't think that they've done that yet. It's not that hard to ride the right bike in an event where there are going to be thousands and thousands and thousands of people where you're guaranteed to get put on video and in photos. I can understand why Canada would be annoyed by that. And, you know, that's who pays the bills, right? The sponsors pay the bills. So I, I'm while I think that the reaction from, you know, a termination notice is a bit heavy handed. I also think that it's just not that hard to do what you're supposed to do in the riders case here. I agree. And I sympathize with uh, voters and company because I'm sure the sponsors are not happy about this. And to me, yeah, it seems a little heavy handed, but it, it does seem within, you know, within the realm of something that they're OK to do. Um, I, I don't think I would have done that if I'd been running the team. I would have done something else, something a little less um, aggressive. <laughs> but I think the blame has to fall on the rider here. I, th I think the blame certainly falls on the rider, but that I, I, this sort of thing also happens all the time as far as riders riding their next season's bike. Um, in in public, and we we know that this happens all the time. We've talked about it for God knows how many however many years after years after years. Um, but I think the case here is different because this video that Dan that you were describing, like it it wasn't just some video that was on Twitter. Like it it completely went viral. It was retweeted. It got viewed. God knows how many hundreds of thousands or whatever times. And it it for for people who maybe haven't seen it by some miracle, um, it was. It was it was uh, Higita and I can't remember who he was with, but just absolutely tearing up a mountain past dozens scores of amateur riders with an ACDC soundtrack in the back of it. Like it looked like they were on a motorcycle. So it went like everyone's seen this thing. So in that sense, it probably didn't help that so many people had seen this thing. Like if you're gonna ride the wrong bike in an event, it's not maybe not that big of a deal. If you're going to ride it in an event and get filmed and then have it go viral online and social media, that might be a little bit more of a problem. At the same time, Lawson wasn't riding his bike in an event or anything. He was just riding on a standard training ride with I think he was in an event, Lance. Abby. He was went he? to he went to some Mellow Johnny's thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Never mind. He was at it was it was like a group ride, but it was I mean it was not to the same scale of the of the Rigo. Didn't go viral. Like so it wasn't an of, event, yeah, but it, it was a group ride in which people would take pictures of a professional. 
Yeah. Now, like some context here, right? Like the reason why these riders are on the new bike already is because they probably have to go to some kind of training camp in the next month or so. They want to make sure that that fit is dialed. They want to make sure that everything's good to go. They don't want to show up at training camp and have that be the first time that they ride a new bike because they're probably going to put in for a you know, sort of midwinter training camp a, a decent number of hours that week. That's a really good way to injure yourself is to hop on a bike and just immediately jump into into you know a 15, 20, 25 hour week, whatever it's going to be. So that's why. But at the same time, like I said, they do a lot of this training on their own. That's when you can figure out how to fit your bike and maybe continue to run the old one until in, in public places until the end of the year. It just does like I, 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 I struggle with like in any other job, if you're going to change jobs, you can't start working for the new employer until you're done working for your previous employer. Right. If I was going to go leave cycling tips and, and write for, what would I write for? Vanity Fair. Cats Monthly. Cats Monthly. If I was going to leave Cycling Tips and go write for Cats Monthly, I don't know if this is a, a magazine or not. I can't, I can't start writing for Cats Monthly until I'm done working for Cycling Tips. And I certainly can't like use the wrong laptop. And like in any other job on the planet, these things are not, not, not just frowned upon. But no one would even think to do it. Who's going to who's going to start working for a new employer before they stop working for the last one? Only only in professional cycling. Now, this kind of brings me to another point, which, Abby, you mentioned before we hit record here, which is that the, the real issue, the real issue is that the contracts start and end at the wrong time. Right. They start and end at the beginning of the year. And realistically, they should start and end what? November 1st or something. End on Halloween, start November 1st. Yeah. Or I've actually heard people talk about how it would be cool if they could um, end like uh, end of October because there's always racing through October and start January 1st and riders would have two months of basically they could get paid by other brands and stuff to be ambassadors or whatever for two months, which I don't fully see how that would work. Two months is a short time, but it would be like there's, they have that in, I think it's like, I think it's football. I don't know. I don't know other sports, but I know that the, whoever I was talking to said there was another sport where the athletes have basically like a three month period where they don't have any obligations and they can kind of pick up endorsement deals and make money that like through other brands that would be a conflict of interest on their teams. Um, but I, I mean, I, I fully think I had a contract once that ended on Halloween and for two months before my contract started with my new team, I got to wear whatever I want and ride the new bike. And there was, (laughs) there was no issues other than that. I wasn't getting paid for two months, but it was only $800 a month. So like what bit difference does that make? Uh, (laughs) but like, yeah, I don't know. I think it's, it's in, it's weird that cycling, you know, they all have team camp in December. They all have meet and greet camp in November or October, and they're not allowed to post anything about these new teams or be seen in the new stuff. And at the same time, it's cycling is different than a real job in that you do need to start riding the bike early because Racing starts in February and you need that fit dialed. And if anything goes wrong, if you have knee problems because of the new pedals, if you need to try out a bunch of different saddles, you got to get that out of the way in November. It's really, really, really important. And that's why the riders ride the new bikes. And the the way that the contract periods are right now, it just it doesn't really make sense for how cycling is. Yeah, I mean... It- it's like marginally marginally less stupid than saying, okay, well, the contracts run, you know, July to July, right? I mean, that would make zero sense. And to me, running contracts from beginning of the year to the, to the end of the year makes zero sense because, like you said, it just doesn't line up with how the schedules actually work. Look at cross racing. That's the dumbest shit ever. January 1st, all of a sudden, people are on different teams. Doesn't make any <laughs> sense. That's even worse. That is even worse. Yeah, anyway, kind of stupid all around. 
back in October, I went to um, a, a, a get together of one of the a team who's changing bikes, shoes, helmets, the job lot, and they have they obviously had to have uh, bike fitters there to get everybody on the new bikes for the new year. I'm doing quite a few videos from that that trip, but I'm not allowed to even post them until January, obviously because they're on new bikes, new kit. And the amount of pressure, the amount of aggro I got from the um, the media representatives on that particular team who were terrified that I was going to maybe post a picture of somebody even just on the bike fitting jig, let alone on the bike that they'll be riding, was before January 1st, was like they were genuinely really worried because they were that they could get pulled aside and maybe sued by the bike brand, whoever. The existing sponsors probably pay in installments and it, it, they may have an installment left that they would just refuse to pay, right? If, if, if that stuff started to get out. So the whole thing just doesn't make any sense. And this is what we, what we saw last week was just a symptom of it, right? I mean, it was, it was poorly handled on all sides, right? Igita and Lawson probably should in mass events like that, should ride the right bike that that's clear to me they have the other bike they can ride it at home that's fine at the same time ef kind of overreacted but the whole thing is wrapped up in this in this problem of timing and contract lengths and and when the things turn over and how it just doesn't match up with with the way the season actually works so it's just a, the, it was just silly all around to me. The the whole thing makes no sense. It's it's just sort of teams and riders and cycling just shooting itself in the foot for no reason when you could just adjust the contract dates and it would be fine. We should provide the sort of end of the story, which is the fact that um, neither Sergio nor Lawson were in fact uh, fired. The team uh, sent them these letters. They made it that news made it into the media, and then the team kind of came to agreements with them, uh, whereby they. You know, said nice things about the bikes or apologized or whatever it was and and they didn't they didn't lose their jobs which basically means they didn't lose a paycheck for the you know the next month and a half which is really the where we should have ended up to begin with <laughs> it should have been sort of an angry letter that was maybe never leaked to the media yeah the the aggressive nature of their response was just a, a little much like i said i i kind of fault the riders but i mean the ef didn't have to go that far to yeah it's everybody's fault here this the whole thing is just silly Anyway, speaking of silly, <laughs> we've got more silly on the list here. Uh, Waffen Art is selling some NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Uh, now, I am no expert in the blockchain, <laughs> but I, I do know roughly what these things are. You basically, you you are buying proof of ownership of something that, you know, you can screenshot. <laughs> so, uh but the, the proof of ownership is the important part and is where the value comes from. And it's, it's, you know, there's a whole thing going on across way bigger than cycling with NFTs at the moment. All sorts of crazy things selling for all sorts of crazy money. Uh, and cyclists are, are starting to kind of get in on it. So Waffenart is, uh, <laughs> he's posted this video, which as Ian Trellor said on the on the site, uh, big hostage video vibes. It's sort of dark and weird. Uh, if you want to go check it out, there is a story up on cyclingtips.com. Right now you can go watch it. Uh, the highlights, so the, the the NFTs are for the 2020 edition of Strada Bianca, uh, which was hot and dusty, the double Mont Ventoux stage, and his tour capping sprint win on the Champs-Élysées. Uh, so those are the three NFTs you can buy from him. Uh, at the time of publishing, I believe that the Mont Ventoux one is the most expensive currently. Somebody has bid 0.4 WETH, some sort of Ethereum thing, which is worth roughly US $1,837.02. That was the bid as of publishing now nfts have been used i should say like sort of blockchain technology is used i think in one interesting way in the bike industry right now which is colnago using it as a sort of proof of ownership of a, of a particular frame uh and with like a little chip embedded in the frame that you can basically scan and and connect to you know connect that chip to an owner and in theory 
it's a proof of ownership that lasts sort of forever and is unhackable. And if that bike is ever recovered, you could, in theory, find out who owns it and get it back to that person. I think that's kind of neat. I don't really fully understand the um, the NFT of of quite average artwork uh, for three victories worth eighteen hundred dollars. That that one's a little bit beyond me at the moment. I think it's basically the same situation as. Um Playing cards, collecting comic books back in the nineties. If anybody was there, it was a case of it was everybody thought they had a comic book that was worth something, but because there was a million of them printed of one issue, none of them were worth anything. And, uh, <laughs> and I've also seen it. NFTs been basically said that they're the new Beanie Babies. Everybody thinks they've got something worth of value, but definitely not. <laughs> so, as far as I can tell. You purchase an NFT, it's like an investment, right? You're not purchasing the actual artwork because you can just you can just print that already. That the NFT is not relevant to the actual ownership of the physical being, a physical thing. You just sort of proof of ownership, right? So you're basically purchasing as an investment uh, on the assumption that someone at some point will be stupider than you and therefore willing to pay more than you just paid for it, right? For basically owning nothing. Something. Or yeah, yes, something. for owning for owning something that's nothing. Now, granted, I'm sure that there are some folks out there who are very uh, pro NFTs, and I'd love to hear from you. And someone explain to me why why on earth I should pay eighteen hundred dollars for proof of ownership of a like picture of what when I with his arms in the air. There's a level of abstraction here as well that attracts to I suppose the people who buy these things that irks me. Because it's, it's a, you could, you could say that NFT, I mean, you could say all kinds of things about NFTs in general, just being made up things that we're randomly assigning value to. I don't really have a problem with that aspect of NFTs generally, because I mean, that's how we assign value to most things. Stocks are kind of that way, right? But NFTs, there's an additional layer here. When, when Wow uh, put up on Twitter what he was doing, he said he was, um, he said he was selling his three biggest victories as NFTs. So Wout Wout has decided that his victories, these moments, what you're really buying, Kaylee, it's not the art, it's it's the moment. Somehow, you are paying for ownership of this moment. One of the biggest, uh, best known NFT sales recently was uh, Jack Dorsey selling his first tweet. Um, He's, of course, the, 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 the guy behind Twitter, and he sold his quote unquote, sold his first tweet uh, for, for quite a lot of money. Uh, it was like $2 million or something like that, $2.5 million. And again, he, he just decided, and the rest of the NFT world, I guess, said, yeah, this seems, this seems reasonable, that his tweet, the, the thing, was something that you could buy. I don't, I don't really understand why that, that, that's something that everybody else just accepted, that you could buy a tweet. Uh, it's not like the person who bought this tweet now can do anything with it uh but the, the nft you know world simply decided oh we can sell a moment it's not so it's not just the artwork it's this sort of abstract thing where this person decided they could sell this you you buy it on the assumption that someone down the line is going to be a bigger sucker than you were that's the that's the whole that's the whole thing right i well, so first of all i i think there are people who it's sort of like a collectible thing. So it's not just an investment. I mean, there's, there's people who collect cards, not just as an investment, because they think it's cool to own that, that thing. They think it's cool to own that Mickey Mantle rookie card. That, that, and and I, think, I think that's okay. If you assign value to that thing, that, that I, who am I to say that that's not cool? It, to me, it's just a little strange that we just accept that you can sell a moment. And, and the, the, nobody really says to you, well, that seems weird and that you don't actually own that thing to sell in the first place. Uh, so I don't, think it's, oh, I don't think everybody who does this is doing it as an investment. Although I also think that there probably will be people down the line who will buy this. So maybe it's a good investment. I mean, I think there there's going to be. be people out there who will pay <laughs> this will money. <laughs> Can I just Google like Wout Van Art Von 2 and just take a screenshot of, the, of him saluting? Like, isn't that the same <laughs> yeah, thing? Yeah, I don't really, there's, there's just, there don't seem to be a whole lot of um, accepted rules around that. I mean, who, who determines wh- and just who be has like, ownership of this? the moment? I don't, I, I don't own, know. I own this moment? Yeah. Hmm. You should just do that on Twitter, Abby, and just see what happens. 
I'm just going to start screenshotting moments that I think are great and just be like, I now own this. Um, so what? Taylor Swift's black dress that she wore to Jimmy Fallon's interview, I'm going to just go screenshot that and be like, I own this now. I own this moment. So what if we what if we created an NFT? If we just screenshotted this screen right now with the five of us hanging out, making the podcast and we made a cycling tips podcast NFT. What should we do it? No, I just woke up. My hair looks terrible. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I bet we'd get some money. Some somebody no, somebody would give us money. It wouldn't be a lot, but we might we might generate some revenue off of that, actually. I also I have sort of like like uh philosophical issues with with the whole thing because it's quite energy intensive. And so you're it's very energy intensive at a time when when, you know, global climate is is should be top of mind. We're we're in the middle of the summit at the moment. Uh and and yet we're we're burning all this fuel to generate things that don't exist, and I sort of have a f- sort of fundamental philosophical issue with that. Separate from like I think that blockchain technology can be useful in other ways. Like I was saying that I think the Colnago thing is actually kind of interesting, but this this particular area irks me in multitude of ways. <laughs> it just makes no sense. <laughs> And I'm sticking by my assessment that the whole point is that someone down the line is going to be a bigger sucker than you are. So with that, I'm sure I'll probably get some angry emails about that one. I apologize. No, I don't apologize. <laughs> I don't we're, apologize at all. We're, getting, we're going to get angry emails, particularly from the person who bought, who buys these things. $1,800. What? Here, here's, a, a, here's the thing, Kaylee. nothing. But, but here's the thing. That person who spent $1,800 $1, for... That moment probably doesn't really care about that eighteen hundred dollars. That that is the equivalent of Correct. you or me like dropping a quarter on the ground. <laughs> that is true. A this quarter? is true. This are you is kidding true. me? Those things are like you can use those to pay for parking. I'd say a dime. Like a quarter <laughs> you can, is a loss. You can get loss. gumballs. All right. Yeah, okay. Like gumball. Right. Loss. All right. I'll I'll I'll, re- I'll re- <laughs> I will revise that because indeed, like I I it really wasn't that long ago when a quarter was worth more than twenty five cents because like that's the only thing that would run washing machines and that sort of thing. Um, so yes, maybe it's the equivalent of dropping like a nickel. Also, do you remember when the quarters, like when they first announced the state quarters, and you could collect them and you'd go to the bank and they give you like that. a give you a booklet with the states and you could collect all the state quarters. Man, that was fun. I don't think I ever got. I think there's one that I never got. It was Alaska. It's like owning an NFT I'll, of hard currency. I'll sell you. I'll send no, you. No, because an, you I'll can. I'll sell you an NFT. Use them for. I'll exactly sell you an NFT you... of that. Uh, <laughs> I'll sell you an <laughs> NFT of that Alaska quarter. I think we should make a cycling tips NFT. I just don't know what it should be yet. I'm thinking it should be something really dumb because that's generally what we think of the whole thing. I think like a screenshot of this of this podcast. Of, Abby looking slightly bedraggled in her van. <laughs> James looking very skeptical. Shoddy with a baby. Dane standing there. <laughs> sitting there. Are you standing or sitting? I can't actually see. Sitting, yeah. Sitting. I'm going to stand for a whole I, I hour. That's a lot of standing. I, I figured, but I can't yeah. see anything below yeah. your shoulders. So just in a, in a, in a light room, hanging out. Dane's the one on this podcast that I constantly think is frozen because he just never moves. Like Shoddy's just like constantly <laughs> exactly. moving. Like Shoddy's just like and like James makes facial expressions and Kaylee talks with his hands, but like Dane just sits there. All right, in the challenge exact same accepted, Abby. No more movement for the rest of the pod. <laughs> Stoicism, engage. Why do I talk with my hands on a podcast? No one can see me except we for can all of see you. you. I guess yeah. you, you can all see me. Yeah. yeah. All right. Haven't you got a bit of Italian in you, Kaylee? I do. I'm half Italian. Yeah, that's that'll be why then. My, that that side of my family. Yeah. Also, the I've been trying to. I've been working on this. I've been working on myself. Everybody. Uh, I've been trying to like not interrupt you all as much because I come from this massive Italian family where basically if you're the loudest, you get to talk, and it's it's I'm I need to rein it in. I need to <laughs> need to oh, rein in this so particular piece of my past. <laughs> Yeah, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. So it's not that I'm purposely being rude. It's that <laughs> where I come from in my family. It's just how it is. <laughs> if you're not like that, then you never talk. So with that, 
Let's move on. Is Dane frozen? <laughs> nope. See, I saw a smile there. I saw a smile there. Someone, someone send me an email explaining why I should spend $1,800 on an NFT of, of Wavenard's Von 2 victory. I would like to hear a genuine explanation of why, why this is a thing and, and why it should be a thing. Because at the moment, I haven't seen one yet. Moving on. Gravel Nationals. <laughs> why is Gravel Nationals on my run sheet, Abby? Oh, because uh, Demi Vollering, who apparently doesn't believe in off-seasons or took the world's shortest off-season... Uh, entered her first event of the 2022 season uh, and and won. It was the National Championships Gravel Edition. So she's Dutch, the Dutch Gravel National Champion, um, which is her first national title. Pretty cool. And uh, why? <laughs> is, is this like a UCI sanction? Like she's an actual national champion now? Honestly, I didn't look into it very much. I was like, "Oh, that happened." Okay. She's um, she's also had the had the wits about her to ride it on uh, her specialized. Just want to point that out. Uh, she was riding a correct bike uh, to win this national title, which got her some press. To be fair, those guys though were on they're on new teams. I, and- I know she's not she's not changing teams. I'm, I'm aware. It would have yeah. been even worse if she'd like shown up on a trek. I, I get it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would have been that would have been weird. That just would have been weird. Um, yeah, there was actually like a good amount of controversy this year in America when Lauren Stevens showed up to gravel races in her road national champion jersey because it's not a road race. So can she wear the road national champions jersey? Mm. Gravel racers everywhere said no. Um, but also I don't believe no. that there's a U.S. That's a clear no. Yeah, I don't believe there's a gravel nationals in the U.S. yet. So <laughs> not not sanctioned by USA Cycling, which it would need to be to be like an official national championship, right? But there is in the Netherlands, and Demi Ballering is the champion. Will Specialized make her a jersey? I don't know. <laughs> For sure. And she could wear it at Strada Bianca. I mean, Ashley Woman Passio has like a world champion bike for being the e-world champion, so... I don't know how I feel about that. Like a, like a world champion spin bike or her own bike that goes on a trainer? Is the trainer painted? Is the whole trainer, yeah, rainbow jersey? <laughs> like a proper road bike, like a really nice, one of the race bikes, specialized race bikes that they race on. And she's got the full kit and everything. Um, she she can only wear it on the trainer and use it on the trainer, but she has it. And it's a thing. Does the bike have brakes? Uh, yes, because I do believe she's also, she has ridden it outside, to my knowledge. Uh, okay. Well, congrats to Demi Vollering for winning uh, Gravel nationals I, I'm, I'm kind of okay with this you know like i don't find the presence uh, or the existence of a gravel nationals or a gravel world championships or a uci gravel series or whatever i don't find that threatening to the rest of the gravel scene fundamentally right like the rest of the gravel scene can stay the way it has been very sort of from the ground up grassroots kind of vibe while also having these other events for professional athletes who want to ride on gravel as fast as they possibly can. I think, I think these two things can exist. They can coexist peacefully, I think. Uh, so congrats to Demi. And I'm sure we'll see more of this down the road. Let's get to the Giro. The 2022 Giro route was announced last week. Starts in Hungary. Dane, what are we looking at here? What do you think? Well, yeah, first of all, I want to explain really quickly how the route was unveiled and register my complaint. Uh, so if RCS is listening, <laughs> Mauro or whoever decided this, uh, they decided this year to unveil the Giro route in a very piecemeal fashion. It took them like a week and they did all the sprint stages and then the climbing stages. And it, it was this long, drawn out thing instead of one big presentation. And, you know, I... I hats off i guess to trying something new in in the in the during the pandemic but you could have just rolled it out all all, all at once with some different uh, they could have they tried something new that was not this uh, i'm 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 not a fan of the slow rollout i gotta check nine different emails from the rcs with the various images of the profiles in them come on uh finally though we did have the full reveal and yeah, the, the, what was what was revealed is a very climber friendly Giro d'Italia. So the race will start in Hungary with three stages. Uh, that's a sort of uh, a delayed Hungary uh, big start. That's what they call it. 
the Grande Partenza, I guess somebody decided that the Italian name was was not good enough. So they ended up, they literally, they call it the big start, like in their own materials. Um, they kind of switch back and forth every every few mentions, I feel like. Uh, so the big start is happening in Hungary, and then it's going to head down to Italy. And over the course of the race, the 21 stages, there are only two time trials with a grand total of 26.3 kilometers. And both time trials actually have Cat 4 climbs in them. So they're not even flat, you know, TT specialist focused time trials. They are hilly affairs. So it's going to be a, a Giro for the climbers. And I'm a, a little surprised that they went down this uh, road, no pun intended, uh, because this, I mean, the Giro quite recently had kind of been the one flying the the flag of tradition, you know, as the tour was trying to mix things up with Julian Alaphilippe style hilly stages or, or cobbles or whatever it might be. Uh, the Giro was the one that said, no, we're going to have multiple big time trials and really high mountains. And But this year, no, they're going to go with uh, very short time trials and a very climber-friendly route. Did I read correctly that Mara Veni, the, uh, the director of the Giro these days, challenged Tade Pogacar to come do the, the double? Yes, and what he said was something along the lines of, you know, what's, what's three or four Tours de France? Who really cares? I'm paraphrasing here. Um, but he kind of basically was saying, does it really matter to win a third or fourth Tour de France? Which, to which I would say, yes, obviously. But, I mean, Mauro has to do what he has to do to get people to come to his race when it's, you know, the very best are going to go to the Tour de France. So I, I, I do feel for, for Mr. Vigny trying to come up with ways to get people to come to his race. But I wasn't a big fan of the way that he went about uh, challenging Tade. But maybe, you know, I mean, who knows? We, we've seen a number of Grand Tour stars in, the, in recent years. Um, do, they do put value on, on trying to win the Giro Tour double. Uh, it's something that hasn't been done in a very long time. And, and if you ask me, I, I don't think it's doable uh, right now. But if anybody's going to do it, Tade Pogacar seems like the one to do it. Uh, but I would be pretty surprised if he... If, let's be real, if he torpedoed his Tour de France chances by going to the, the Giro d'Italia, because one is clearly a bigger um, bigger target than the other. I think you should try. Plus, if you want Tadej Pogacar to come to your race, maybe add some time trial kilometers. Uh, obviously, <laughs> he's very, very good at climbing, too, but he's a pretty darn good time trialist. Uh, and, and if you add more time trial kilometers, you might get Roglic and Pogacar to come to your race, because they're so good at them that uh, it helps to have time trial kilometers when you're trying to beat a guy like Egan Bernal, who isn't quite, he's not bad, but he's not quite as good uh, against the clock. The, the, other options, the other options maybe not belittling what is going to be a good result anyway at the tour, I'm sure. Saying, oh yeah, you don't need another one. Another tour wins nothing, yep. come to ours. Yeah, I would say don't don't belittle a guy for starters. Yeah, that's going to be a good, good place to begin. <laughs> I think you should do it. Why not? Give it a go. I'd, I'd rather him do it now and try versus like wait until he's sort of starting to fade and then try. Right. Yeah. Because he'll fade at some point. They That's all do. fair. Yeah. I, I'd, I'd love to see him just give it a go, you know, and it's, it's one of those things we know is, is physically possible. It's possible right now. It's probably harder than it's ever been. So yeah, I mean, I, in some ways I think that, that, that venue kind of, phrased it wrong you know he, he shouldn't have talked about how a third or a fourth tour de france does win doesn't matter that's not true but a giro tour double would make that tour de france win exponentially more impressive right and it would it would really set whoever does it next up on this pedestal above basically every single the gc rider for the last 20 years right uh so i think that yeah i think that it's worth trying for sure and it let's be honest if Pogacar torpedoed his Tour de France chances this year, he's got, what, like another decade to try to go for it? He's probably going to win a couple more anyway. Like, my issue when when Froome did it, when Froome initially went for that Giro Tour double, my issue with it was that he was so close to the end of his sort of GC career, right? But just by age. We know that, was it, no, no rider has ever won the Tour de France at 35. There's been a bunch of 34-year-olds and no 35-year-old has ever won the tour since like at least since like 1920s. You have to go way back to when it was a completely different race. So if you're near the end of that, maybe that's not the time to be attempting these things when you're also trying to get the fifth tour, tour win. 
But if you've got a decade to, to then go get the rest of your tour wins, I think now is the time. I think you should do it. If there is a Grand Tour rider that can do it, and I would, I would think would want to do it, it would be him because he does seem to be just a guy that wants to race his bike. Like we've said before, Grand Tour riders are turning up to the classics now and putting a show on. They're not just turning up for training miles. And and he's one of the he's one of these riders that have gone out and won a, have won a grand um, a monument. So there's no reason why he well he he clearly does love racing his bike. He doesn't do it just because he's good at it. So there's no reason why. Yeah, I can't see him go right. Yeah, actually, I do fancy giving it a stab instead of the tour at all. Maybe doing both. Yeah, like you say. I hope so. All right. Anything else from the Giro route that we should know? It's a climbers course. Starts in Hungary. Yeah. Any other details, Dane? Just I, I feel like we should give some you know, sense of the climbs themselves. It's a climbers course not only because of the lack of TTs, but also because there is a lot of climbing, uh, particularly in that final week, as ever. Uh, all told, it's it's 51,000 meters of elevation gain, and there are some stages towards the second half of the race, uh, uh, particularly, well, the, the, the 20th stage is a, one of the many, you know, serious climber days. It's, it's going to go... Uh, up and over the highest point of the Giro at, at uh, over 2,200 meters, uh, finishing on the Paso Fidaya. So, yeah, there are some really hard days in particular. It's not just a lack of, of TTs um, and, and some some iconic climbs as well. The, the you know, Motorola and and, uh, and other big ones uh, as, as the race kind of ascends in the very mountainous north of Italy. So should be some good ones. Should be some entertaining days if you like climbing. I do wonder who is going to be there because... I think that many of the top riders will be at the tour. Um, but wh- whoever does go, I hope they have good climbing legs. What I do think could could be a bit challenging, which might not be something people will pick up on, is that there's three rest days. So this is, I've, I've, I can't remember a Grand Tour where there's been three rest days. Usually if they do a, a crazy start in somewhere like Budapest and then have to jump, uh, fly like they, have, like they are doing to uh, Sicily, they generally... Um, have a huge section in the middle where they're doing like not just six, seven days of racing, but maybe nine days and then go into the rest day. So now it, it could be a really fiery race because they've got that extra rest day in there. It could literally just be like, there might not be any easy mountain stages or stages where they just, yeah, let a break go away, get away and then worry about the biggest stage later on because everyone's not going to be fresher, but yeah, they're going to have an extra rest day to put their legs up, hopefully recover a bit more i think there was an extra rest day i think in the when it started in in northern ireland yeah the 14 Giro had a rest day to break up the ireland yeah. transfer transfer yeah because i just i remember everyone trying to get back to italy after that and and yeah there was like a rest day on the monday or tuesday or something like that so it's not unheard of but yeah it could it could affect the racing let's move on from the Giro. dane abby you guys write some stories for the for the website segmenttips.com great website what did you write about most recently? Actually, I wrote for another website. Uh, what? I was hoping nobody would notice, but I know it went viral. And so please don't, please don't fire me. Dogs Weekendly. Yeah, was it cattips.com? Yeah, I know. It was, it was dogs. It was Dogs Weekly. Yeah. Well, we'll let it pass this time. Thanks. We'll send I, an, angry, an yeah. angry lawyer letter your way. Uh, and then due to the PR blowback, we'll probably. Yeah, I was going to was gonna leak to the media, but anyway. since, since you're being reasonable about this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> What do we write about? Uh, Abby and I wrote uh, some some analysis about uh, transfers that we like, G- good fits, uh, riders with with new teams. So maybe we can pick, I don't know, one or two riders uh, who we found to be yeah good fits with their new teams, and then you'll have to go read the article to, to get more. Abby, which which two transfers on the women's side are you particularly excited about? Um, two of the transfers that I am the most excited about. One of them is Loto Kopecky, who is going to SD Works. It just seems like a absolutely perfect move on both Kopecky and SD Works' uh, side. They are losing a handful of top riders, and Kopecky is going to fill those slots seamlessly. She's Belgian, so kind of fits the narrative of the team. I guess it's pretty international, but they do they do really like their Dutch and Belgian riders. And um, hot damn, is she good. So only going to get better a perfect fit also 
Another writer I'm really, really excited about is Corinne Lebecki, um, who will be going to Yumbo Visma after many years with Sunweb DSM. Um, I think for Lebecki, it's more of kind of a fresh start to her career. Um, we've talked at length about DSM and the issues on that team. And she's been on that team for a really long time. And I think by going to a new team, uh, it's going to be kind of a, it's going to kickstart her career a little bit. She's an incredible rider. So I'm excited to see what she can do under Voss. What about you, Dane? Yeah, I'm liking the move of Esteban Chavez to EF uh, for a lot of reasons. I think he's shown in the last year or two that he's he's um, you know he's he's dealt with some some health issues. Um, he he hasn't had the results in the last few years that I think maybe we would have expected of him earlier in his career when he was lighting it up at a, at a relatively young age of the Grand Tours, won a monument even. Uh, but I think he's shown enough to to suggest to me that he's got. He's got still some stuff ahead of him. He's he's got uh, future wins, and EF I think is a really good place for him because I think he needs to be at a team where there is a there's a spot for a, a climber, a, a Grand Tour type rider, and not a lot of pressure. Uh, and I think EF is that team. I think if he went to a, an, an Ineos or, or Yumbo Visma, he'd either be relegated to domestique duty like right away. Or, you know, he'd be in this tough position where the team would want him to prove that he's worthy of, uh, of Grand Tour leadership uh, very quickly. And I don't think he's going to get that at EF. I think EF, the sort of, you know, the expectations for Grand Tour dominance aren't the same as at those other teams. And that should give him a little bit of uh, breathing room to, to try to do his own thing and, and not have the pressure. And if it doesn't work out as a Grand Tour, you know, rider, I think he also has that talent to kind of be a one-week uh, one day kind of racer. And so I just think this is a great, great matchup. Uh, they, they need somebody like him and, and he needs a, a place like that. Uh, who, who takes the GC mantle at EF after Rigo leaves? Yeah. But, I mean, Hugh Carthy is there. Uh, he didn't have uh, the kind of 2021 season that he'd hoped for, but I think he's could still fill that role. Chavez is another rider who certainly has the potential. Um, they don't have anybody proven who's going to fill that role yet, but I think they have some options, and I and I think now is going to be a good time to figure out who's going to you know fill that role, or if they need to go get somebody new. Who says that Rigo is ever going to leave? <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah, good point. Yeah, he's going to be the like the new Valverde, just sort of <laughs> continuing on <laughs> forever. <laughs> Forty three years old, mixing up at the front of uh, Grand Tour pelotons. Dane, what's your second one? Yeah, the other rider was uh, Joao Almeida, who I think was in an interesting spot with with Dakota Quickstep because that team just doesn't focus on Grand Tours. You know, they they did support him. They um, you know they kind of angled their Giro run around more of a, a GC focus this year with both him and uh, Remco Evenepoel. But I think he's going to get more sort of generally team support at UAE, and I think surprisingly UAE didn't have the caliber of kind of secondary. GC riders that their rivals Ineos and Yumbo Visma have, you know, as talented as Tadej Pogacar is behind him, there weren't, there wasn't that same level of kind of uh, plug-in second option with, with Yumbo Visma, Primoz Roglic, you know, left the Tour de France and they, they still finished second at the Tour de France because they had Jonas Vingago uh, and Ineos Grenadiers have like four Grand Tour winners on their team. That's that wasn't the case for UAE. They've got some talented young riders, but they went out this transfer season and they signed uh, quite a few more talented young GC type riders. And Almeida, I think, is going to lead the way there. He's really versatile. He's got a great time trial and great climbing legs. I think he's a good rider to build around. And I think UAE have shown that they're capable of developing talents like Joao Almeida. So he's, you know, he's not going to be the team's top flight option for the Tour de France, obviously, because they've got Tadej Pogacar. But I don't think he needs that right now. And I think he's still going to get plenty of opportunities at both the Giro and possibly the Vuelta. And I think he's going to do really well at his new team. Yeah, I think that's a perfect fit. I think it's one of those, uh, yeah, well, for, for the exact reasons that you said. it's uh, He slots in to the sort of second, third tier GC rider just perfectly in that team. There you have it. Some excellent transfers, in the opinion of Abby and Dane, for the full list. Go check out cyclingtips.com. Still on the homepage somewhere. Dane? Yes? We've got some mid-roll. Would you like to read it for us? Certainly. Your best. I'd love to. 
uh, I'd love to. Before, I'll, I'll buy any. I'll buy anything you sell. Okay. Well, thing, we are anything. excited to be bringing you this podcast with the support of premium apparel stalwarts attacker who have just released their brand new race 2.0 collection taking an already acclaimed product range back to the drawing board is a bold move but attacker have never been ones to shy away drawing on eight years of relentless product development the race 2.0 collection perfectly balances innovation and performance with style supportive durable and comfortable for whatever you can throw at it on the road gravel or beyond this is race designed for performance defined by you race 2.0 is now available at attackercycling.com that's a-t-t-a-q-u-e-r cycling.com and select dealers globally thanks to attacker for supporting the podcast take my money i have i have an idea can we sell an nft of dane's voice does that work maybe maybe instead of selling ads into the podcast Uh. we'll sell nfts in each podcast and so then whoever buys the ad space will have proof into eternity of their ownership of that ad space yeah this makes no sense (laughs) none of it makes any sense (laughs) but thank you to attacker for sponsoring this week's episode you make really good stuff i like your clothing well done all right let's get into our last topic of the day it is time for Nerd Nugget. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. James, Nerd alert. a miles Nerd per gallon rating of bikes. Four bikes. Uh, would this be kilometers per liter? Liters per kilometer? It's liters per kilometer, isn't it, in, the, in, in Europe? Le- liters per hundred kilometers. Liters per hundred kilometers. I, I, I always, whenever I have a rental car in France, and I'm like, what does that number actually mean? <laughs> I don't actually know. And I've tried to like do the, I've been driving along in the highway for hours and hours and hours and hours trying to like do the math in my head for like liters and gallons and kilometers and miles and trying to figure out what the equivalent in miles per gallons is. And I've never gotten there because my brain doesn't work that way. Anyway, that was a tangent. James, what are we, what are we talking about here? All right. Well, the other day, Dave, uh, Dave Rome, our tech editor in Sydney, he, he and I, recorded an upcoming Nerd Alert podcast with Eric Bjorling from Trek uh, to talk about the sustainability report that they produced actually back in July. Um, And one of the pieces of data that were super intriguing in that report, among many, uh, were how Trek had a consultancy firm, uh, a sustainability consultancy. Um, they, They basically figured out how many, uh, how much emissions each of their bikes produces uh, in manufacturing. So, uh, in the course of that podcast, which will hit next week, I believe, uh, in the course of that podcast, one of the things I, one of the things I asked Eric was whether or not it made any sense for Trek or the bike industry in general, for people who are concerned about their, uh, I guess, uh, environmental impact of sort of just the things that they buy, whether or not it would make sense to attach a, you know, kilograms of CO2 rating to products, bikes in particular, kind of similar to the way that you have a miles per gallon or liters per hundred kilometers rating on automobiles or like calories on food items and that sort of thing. Like, is that a piece of information that one, companies would actually be able to produce in some sort of reasonably economic and accurate fashion? And two, is it something that consumers would find useful and would actually use in making their buying decisions? Hmm. I I mean... I think I would use it, but I think it would depend what the numbers are, right? Like if, and it it would depend what the scale is. Well, the scale is pretty monumental. See, here's the thing. Like if one bike is a 10 and one bike is a 1500, right? Then like that, that feels like a gap. I don't know what these, what the units would be, but that feels like a gap that's worth paying attention to. But if, if it's all, if they're all roughly the same, if most bikes are roughly the same, that makes it less useful. So I, I don't have a good sense for like what what the span would be. Well, see, here's, well, looking at some of the some of the sample numbers that they produced, um, you can you can roughly say that a, a carbon version of a bike, for example, produced roughly double the amount of CO two emissions as an aluminum version. Uh, carbon is in quite quite energy intensive in a lot of different ways, um, and and a high end carbon bike. 
relative to kind of like a lower end aluminum bike is actually almost like three times the amount of emissions. So it's it's not a it's not a trivial difference. Um, and it 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 makes me wonder like would would people be more prompted to purchase an aluminum bike, for example, fully aware that it's maybe heavier and you know technically aerodynamically slower or whatever than than a nicer carbon bike, but would people be tempted to buy something that they knew required less uh, required fewer resources to produce than something that required more to to produce? Uh, and you know, in, in addition, also saving money and that sort of thing. Like, would that be something that influenced your buying decision? I would say at the moment for a lot of people, that would be a no because a lot of it comes down to the cool factors, doesn't it? Unless you make having that more ecological bike a lot more cooler than having a bike that rides better, is lighter, is more aerodynamic, then people aren't going to go down that route. And it, you just, yeah... It, I, I would think that's. I, th- I think. I think you've got to. You've got to make it appealing in like the really the cool facts because people want the best of the best, and unfortunately, people will find an ex- an excuse not to buy it if it is if if it is more uh, intensive on the environment with you know, burning fossil fuels and a lot. People still find a, a reason. Oh, I'm buying it because even though it's because it's ruining the environment a little bit more than the alloy one. In the long run, I'm going to keep it longer than the alloy one because I know I get bored of the alloy one. Stuff like that, people will find a reason to, yeah, talk themselves into buying that crappier bike up for the environment. I, I do think people are getting there. It's a gradual process, but more so than they were, you know, five or ten years ago. People are interested in that information, and that information can, I think... Uh, a positively impact a, a brand's, you know, uh, chances of getting bought by somebody. It's probably we're probably not there for most people, but I think more and more people are caring about that, and I think it can be something down the road that that might influence those decisions. Yeah, I mean, it's just an a, a, a additional data point, right? If you're balancing a whole bunch of things when you're purchasing a bicycle, you know, I don't think there's any one particular thing that most people are looking for you know most people are not just like just find me the lightest bike and i want that one right it, there's, a, there's a whole bunch of things that go into why you buy something or why you don't and i think that an, an additional piece of information like that could only could only be a good thing uh and i, I think that we've done it we've talked more about this on the nerd alert podcast than on this podcast but we've we've done a fair number of ranting about how much we like aluminum bikes for a lot of different reasons and how we actually want aluminum bikes to be made cool again, which gets to what Shadi was talking about, that like part of the reason why aluminum bikes right now are not quote unquote cool is because they tend to come with lower end part specs. They tend to not have cool paint jobs. They tend to not have just as much attention on them from a marketing perspective, from an engineering perspective, from a media perspective. Like I said, we're, we're, we're part of this just as much as anybody else. But we want to change that. And and when brands have done really cool aluminum bikes, I think they've done really well from a sales perspective. And it, it's not that hard to make them cool. I mean, I, the, the perfect example is those specialized LA Sprint bikes, right? You could get like, like leopard print fork and and pink all over the place and they were just they were just rad. They were just awesome. <laughs> and it, like tons of different cool paint jobs. And for that, particularly for that sort of type of riding crit racing basically having an aluminum bike makes a ton of sense anyway it's it's possible i think it's totally possible to make aluminum bikes cool but it's going to have to undo 20 plus years of marketing telling people that carbon fiber is better when really we're of the opinion i think most of the, most of us in this podcast certainly over on the nerdler podcast we're of the opinion that a good aluminum bike is so close to a good carbon bike and so much cheaper and so much better in other ways that actually more people should be looking that direction for lots of different types of bikes. To, to be clear, I mean, carbon fiber, carbon fiber is without question a superior material to just about any metal from looking at it from a structural perspective. I guess the point, just to hammer the point home, the difference is that good metal bikes, now aluminum in particular, Offers so much performance and offers such good performance value that the the gain that you would get from the nicer carbon fiber bike for many people is not necessarily worth the expense. And I think that that is compounded by a couple technological innovations. 
uh, the biggest of which is disc brakes, which have allowed bigger tires. So like part of the reason why we all switched to carbon 15 years ago, 20 years ago is because the sort of aluminum road buzz thing is a, a real thing, right? There were stiff bikes, particularly back then. The ride quality was not as good. We were also on 23 millimeter tires with 100 plus PSI in them, right? Now everyone, not everyone, a lot of people are running 28s, 30s, 32s on a road bike. Suddenly, the amount of comfort you can get out of a frame is a lot less important than it was even just five years ago. And I think that that's going to start tilting people back. I hope that that's starting to tilt people back toward aluminum frames. I'm I'm an evangelist for this now because I've got a couple of them floating around. I've been on a on a on a aluminum hardtail recently. I've been on an aluminum gravel bike recently. I actually need to get back on a good aluminum road bike. It's been some time since I've been on a good aluminum road bike. I love them. I love both of those bikes that I've been on. Just just the two most recent. And I think that more people should consider it, particularly given how cheap they can be. They're so much cheaper than a good carbon bike. The other thing with regards to stopping people buying the bikes would basically just... Brand saying, yeah, we're not going to make it out of that material because it is that it does damage the environment that much. We're just not going to bother. Yeah, we can make the bike can be X times amount better than this alloy version, but we don't. You might get the benefit out of it, but the Earth's not getting out the benefit out of it, so we're not going to make it out of that. So yeah, maybe it's on the brand's owners to just say, yeah, sorry, we're not going to make it out of that anymore. We're going to put the Earth first rather than your ride quality. Right. Well, I think, as you were saying earlier, Shadi, I mean, I, I think that is, that's, that's obviously not a realistic expectation. Uh, I think no, I think no company that is still looking to make money is going to do that sort of thing. But my, my but my question is still standing. If, if someone, if, if Trek or whoever were to actually just post those numbers on their product websites, say, you know, a, a Madone SLR produces 200 kilograms, 200 kilograms of CO2 emissions, Whereas an Amanda ALR or something is about is, say it's half that. Uh, I don't I don't think the difference is quite that much on that model. Um, but let's just say it's it's about that. Would that change someone's buying decision? And I actually think I don't know if it would necessarily change the buying decisions of the you know the vast majority. But I think it would be a piece of information that a certain percentage would find useful. And I think some people would actually change their decisions if they knew everything that went into the thing that they're buying. I would agree. I mean, like I said, more information is better. I mean, you have, you have people who are, who, are, who are shunning beef because they know how much greenhouse gas emissions are produced by, the, by raising cattle, right? So like, you have people who are basing their, basing their eating decisions completely on that piece of information. Why... By that logic, why wouldn't you use that same sort of information to change how you buy other things? I think we should push for it. I'd like to see it. I'd like to see the numbers, right? Like, it'd be it'd be really interesting. Yeah, to 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 have, yeah, just to see the spectrum, just to see what the differences are and where things lie, and and whether there's any things that stand out as being a little bit surprising. And I'd be I'd be all for it. Well. Listeners out there, why don't you let us know what you think? Tweet at us. Choose an email. Was it tech at cyclingtips.com? I think goes to James. Editor at cyclingtips.com goes to me. We can collate those and figure out what you guys think. Uh, yeah, I'm interested to hear what our listeners think of that. Would you, would you alter your buying habits if you knew essentially the environmental impact of the various bicycles that you were looking at? All right, that's it from us today thanks for listening as always and we'll be back with another cycling tips podcast next week bye everybody bye bye see you